Friends, we're going to hear from uh, God's Word now. So please turn with me to 2 Samuel, chapter 12. Uh, you'll find that on page 315 of the Church Bibles. Second Samuel chapter 12, starting from verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had, had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had brought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from talking, from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for, one, for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, Surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are this man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because he despised me, and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son, you, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the night lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. 
David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us. When we spoke to him, how can we now tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is he's dead. And David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And at his request, they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. And he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Job fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Job then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and, and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I shall take the city and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from the king's, their king's head and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor, to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick making. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then he and his entire army returns to Jerusalem. Ben, thank you. Uh, evening, everyone. My name is Phil Short, and uh, I'm going to be joining the staff team here at the uh, end of this month, I'm going to be the new youth pastor. In fact, I can spy some of the youth sitting at the back there. It's really great to see you guys here. Uh, if you're new or you're visiting, uh, do come and say hi afterwards. I genuinely, I'd love to meet you. But as Ben said earlier, we come to a serious passage this evening. So let me pray and ask for the Lord's help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you so much that you have given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us in full, in your word and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, you have a challenging word to say to us this evening. 
And you also have a glorious word to share with us this evening. And Lord, we need both. We need both the challenge and both the reassurance. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to hear hear this rightly. Please soften our hearts now, Lord, as you speak to us through your word. Would you help us to respond to you rightly by the power of your spirit? In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Tomorrow is Monday. Yes, I know I'm bringing up a Monday on a Sunday night. I'm very sorry. You've got a few more hours to go until you have to go to work. Uh, But just imagine that uh, you're getting up for work tomorrow or for school or uni. I know you're on holiday. But imagine it's kind of regular term time. You're getting up to head off. And uh, you make your coffee. Maybe you're making a bit of toast. And you're late. So you grab in your coat and... Whoever's in your household, you, yep, I'll see you tonight, bye, uh, and you're off. You're dashing down the road, you're catching the bus, catching the tube, and uh, you arrive at your normal tube station, and you walk your normal way to your normal office, and it's, uh, it's a regular Monday morning. But then something very bizarre happens. Suddenly a car screeches around the corner, the window winds down, and then there's a gun. And with no warning they shoot you five times in the head. No warning, no explanation given, completely out of the blue. And your friends and family and your colleagues, they're bewildered. What on earth has just happened? Well, that was the case for Desmond Finney. He was tragically caught up in a case of a mistaken identity back in the Troubles in Northern Ireland in the 70s when he was on his way to work. Two men came around the corner in a car and they killed him in cold blood. And one of those shooters, or the shooter, was a 17-year-old man called Billy McCurry who was a member of the UVF paramilitary. I mean, he was just a lad, really, 17. But he was driven by a bitter hatred and a desire for revenge after his own father was murdered by the IRA when he was just 12 years old. Two weeks later, Billy is arrested, and then a year later, in 1977, he is convicted of murder and sent to prison. Billy felt no remorse. He was completely justified in his own mind He thought that he was assassinating a traitor to the UVF and he thought that he was getting justice for his dad. His heart was so hard that when the judge read out his sentence, he even laughed in the judge's face. Now, while he was in prison, there were a number of Christians who did try to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with him, but he rejected it. He didn't want anything to do with it. But that was until a few years later, one Christmas Eve, there was a, a small, retired, unassuming old lady who used to be a school teacher. She was called Gladys Blackburn. And she used to come around the prison and she would just read the Bible to inmates. And on Christmas Eve in 1980, she read the Bible to him. And something changed. For the very first time in his life, Billy felt an overwhelming sense of guilt, shame, and a deep conviction of sin. And as he heard the word of God being read, he realized that he had sinned, not just against this man, but against the living God. And he knew 
there and then that he deserved an eternity in hell under God's judgment for what he'd done. And he was driven to his knees and God had broken him by his word. And so there and then he confessed his sin before God, put his trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And he was a changed man. The burden of guilt and shame was taken away. Burden of guilt and shame was taken away and his heart was immediately transformed. What had once, the hatred that had consumed his heart, that had driven him to murder, that had now completely gone and his heart was consumed by the love, the extraordinary love of God's forgiveness and grace. And he went on to preach Jesus' message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins right up until this day. In fact, he was here a few years ago and uh, he was one of the, the loveliest gentlest, humblest people that you could hope to meet. But how can God forgive somebody like Billy McCurry? How can God forgive something as wicked as murder? Well, in 1 Samuel 12, we'll see how God can both forgive the unforgivable and fully punish the wickedness of sin. And if you can do that for someone like Billy McCurry, then there's hope for you and there's hope for me. So we'll see three things as we go. We'll see that sin provokes God's fury, that God takes away sin, and that forgiveness of sin requires death. The first point is by far the longest, so don't panic. (laughs) Let's dive in. Sin provokes God's fury. So if you're visiting or you're joining us this week, then you're not only joining us in our series in 2 Samuel, but you are joining us in one of the darkest parts of the whole of scripture and if you were here last week you'll remember that we were reading in chapter 11 about king david's tragic fall from grace it is a shocking story of an unforgivable abuse of power that coerces another man's wife into sex and then he covers it up with murder and he thinks he's got away with it but then we read the very last line of chapter 11, which is probably one of the most sobering sentences in the whole of the Bible. Verse 27 of chapter 11, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's like the ominous rumbling of a hurricane in the distance, except something a lot worse is on the way. And David thinks he's safe. He thinks he's shielded because he's the king. But he's forgotten who's put him there. And now God is ready to act. So look down at verse one with me. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now I don't know if you've ever had to have an awkward conversation with somebody, a friend or a work colleague, 
They may be stepping a little bit out of line and it's a little bit awkward at the best of times. But how do you confront somebody who's shown that they're willing to kill? Especially if there's an accusation as serious as adultery and murder on the table. I mean, if we were Nathan, I mean, I would be thinking, you've got to be joking. What if he kills me? But Nathan demonstrates courageous faith in God. If God is sending me, then I know I can trust him. And Nathan is shrewd. So he knows, okay, if I confront David head on, that's probably not the wisest idea. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell him a story. I'll paint a picture of an injustice. That'll get David on side and it'll help me to show him the reality of his sin. And it's a brilliantly crafted story, isn't it? Because he paints a picture not of petty theft, but of a callous abuse of power. The rich man, he's got an abundance of wealth. We're told that in verse 2. He doesn't need the ewe lamb. But the ewe lamb, it's more than just livestock, isn't it? Have a look down at verse 3. You're given some details. It's loved by the poor man. He raises it. He nurtures it. It's like a daughter to him. So it's probably a sibling to his children. There's a sense of tenderness there. He holds it in his arms to protect it and it eats with him at his table. And we're also told that both men live in the same town. So presumably they know each other. So his actions are deliberate. He knew exactly what he was doing and who he was doing it to. The contempt he shows his neighbor, it reveals the wickedness in his heart. And the story works. Nathan has David right where he wants him. Verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David is furious. He's so outraged by what he's heard. His anger is actually out of control, isn't it? It's disproportionate. If you have a look back in Exodus 22, verse 1, you'll read that the penalty for taking someone else's sheep and then killing it is to pay them back four times what they took. And David knows that. If you look at verse 6, that's what he says. So the man must surely die? Really? But David, he's not put two and two together. And his outburst, it betrays his hypocrisy and his blindness to his own sinful behavior. And so it's worth asking ourselves, isn't it? Is there a risk that maybe I'm blind to my own sin? You know, we quickly get fired up and get angry at other people's sin, but as soon as they come and speak to us and try and show us where we might be going wrong, yeah, we're not so keen on that. Well, David, he gets a rude awakening as Nathan holds up the mirror, shattering his self-righteous anger with the reality of his sin. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. 
And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. It's like a sledgehammer. God brings the full force of the seriousness of David's sin down on him. You're angry, are you, David? You thought that was wicked, that he deserves to die. That was you. You think you should die for taking another man's sheep? You took another man's wife just to selfishly gratify your own sinful desires. And you committed murder to cover it up. And you knew exactly what you were doing. We'll get to the consequences in a minute. But it's worth asking at this point, what lies at the heart of wickedness like this? What God tells us in verse 9. Wickedness always begins with despising the word of the Lord. Despising the word of the Lord is always at the root of sin. Okay, but what exactly does that mean? I think it means two things. Firstly, it is to disobey his commands. Here it's you shall not commit adultery and you shall not murder. And secondly, it is to believe the lie that God isn't good and the only way to get what I need is to disobey him. It's to believe the lie that God isn't good and the only way to get what I need is to disobey him. Well, after Billy uh, became a Christian in prison, he decided he was going to write a letter to his mum. He wanted to share with her that he had committed his life to Christ. And he got a very angry letter back from her. Billy, how can you say that you believe in this God of love and forgiveness? Where was he when your dad, and I quote, was gunned down like a dog by those IRA scum? Where was your God of love and forgiveness then? And Billy says in his testimony that what he realized was that the problem with him and his family was that they just didn't believe that there was a God of justice who would bring justice for his dad and that they needed to take vengeance into their own hands. The only way I can get what I need, justice for my dad's murder, is to disobey God and commit murder myself. But as we'll see as we go through, God is a God of justice and he won't let any sin go unpunished. And David has believed that very same lie. It's the same lie that we all fall for. God isn't good and to get what I need means I need to disobey him. But God is good and he starts by reminding David of just how good and generous he's been. Second half of verse 7. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? 
There's almost like an undertone of bewilderment. David, after everything that I've given you, why would you do this? Why would you doubt my abundant generosity and sin against me? You know, if it wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. But when we lose sight that God is a generous giver, that's when we're prone to indulging our sinful temptation. And deep down, we know we shouldn't. And so we try to keep our sin in the dark and keep it hidden. But God will always bring sin into the light. And that's exactly what he does here with David. He exposes him, he names his sin, and he lays out the consequences. Second half of verse 9, read with me. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. God has made the consequences of David's sin crystal clear. Because you brought murder and death to Uriah the Hittite's house, your family will now know the pain of murder and death. And because you took Bathsheba, who wasn't your wife, now another will take your wives. And what you did in secret will be done in full view of the whole of Israel. Is that not utterly miserable? We will think about forgiveness shortly. But please don't miss, sin has real consequences. Billy McCurry, he's, um, he's very honest in his testimony. More than 40 years after becoming a Christian, he still bears the consequences of his sin. The reality that he took another man's life, the nightmares of the horror of committing murder, and he's adamant that you don't feel sorry for him, not in a self-flagellating sort of way, but because he understands how much he doesn't deserve the grace and mercy that Jesus Christ has shown him. You see, murder promised him justice for his dad and freedom from grief, but actually it made him a prisoner, physically and spiritually. And that's exactly what sin does. Sin promises us everything, but it never ever delivers it only ever brings misery and pain and the spiritual imprisonment of death it is a disease it spreads like cancer and it damages everyone around us so if God takes the sin of his king this seriously what makes you think he won't take your sin seriously I'm not saying that all of us have sinned as seriously as David. But the point is, if God holds even his anointed king accountable, 
What makes you think he won't hold you accountable? The particular context here, of course, is sexual sin. I'm sure I don't need to persuade anybody in this room that our culture is obsessed with sex. But because the difference between what our culture says and what the Bible says is so wide and so opposite to each other, we're prone to just making excuses for ourselves. As a brother, let me warn you, if you are engaging in unrepentant sin, sexual or otherwise, you need to stop saying it's not serious. I'm not talking about battles with sin, okay? I'm not talking about sin that we're regularly confessing and that we're praying through with accountability. All Christians, we're all engaged in a spiritual battle against sin. But we cannot, we cannot continue willingly in hardened, unrepentant patterns of sin and think it doesn't matter. But I guess many of us will will know the pain of failure in this area, the regret of past mistakes, things we wish we could take back, decisions we wish we could unmake, consequences we wish we didn't have to endure. Given God takes sin this seriously, will he really forgive me? Will God really restore me after everything I've done? And the good news for you and me is yes. Yes. There is no wicked thing that God cannot forgive. And he does it by taking away our sin. So secondly, God takes away sin. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. God's word has broken David's hardened heart. And he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, it'd be easy to mistake the brevity of his confession here for a lack of sincerity. But actually, his brevity is good. There's two reasons why that's so. Firstly, David accepts he sinned. He doesn't make excuses and he doesn't push away responsibility. He owns his sin and confesses it. And secondly, he acknowledges that he sinned against the Lord. Ultimately, his offense is against a pure and holy God who cannot tolerate sin of any kind, even from his own anointed king. And David, he knows his Bible, that the penalty is death. And he recognizes that that's what he deserves. And for the sinner who knows they've done wrong, who feels the conviction of God's word and has been humbled to their knees, the next words Nathan says are sweeter to the soul than anything else you could possibly dare hope for. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But I think the trouble that you and I can sometimes have is that we just don't want to accept responsibility for what we've done. We always try to push responsibility away or we try to make excuses. And it's either because we can't really accept that that we're actually that bad. Either we can't accept that or we're afraid 
of the judgment that we know we deserve if people said we were guilty. But David, he owns all of his sin and then confesses it before God. There's no excuses. There's no pushing away responsibility. And having owned all of his sin, God immediately pronounces that he has taken away his sin and removed the penalty of death he deserves. And do you know what that means for me and you? If we're willing to own our sin, if we're willing to confess it, and confess it before almighty God, put your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you can have 100% guaranteed confidence that your sin, that your sin and the guilt and the shame that goes with it will be taken away and the penalty of death will be removed. Is that not wild? Does that not, not blow your mind? But some of us will will say, okay, I know that, but I just don't feel very confident that that will happen for me. How can I have this confidence? What assurance can I have that he really will take it away? You can have full assurance because God takes away sin through the death of the son of the king. Thirdly, forgiveness of sin, it requires death. Verse 14. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us. And when we spoke to him, how can we tell him now the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground After he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and at his request, they served him food and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now I know many of us in this room will have experienced the death of a child in a variety of ways. Maybe it's a miscarriage. Maybe it was a stillbirth. Maybe it was a child fatality of some kind, a a disease, an accident. We'll have questions about what's going on here. Let me explain what this doesn't mean, okay, so we're really clear. Okay, I cannot stress strongly enough that what we see here 
is not, is not a general blueprint for God's judgment on sin. John's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 2. Write it down if you want to look it up later. Jesus makes it explicitly clear that suffering in this life is not directly tied to sin. So if you have experienced the pain of losing a child, it is not because God is punishing you, okay? The point of the child's death here is that it's a picture. It shows us just how much it costs for our sin to be taken away. Now for David, it is a unique moment. It is a consequence of his sin against God. And it is his assurance that God really has taken his sin away. But for us, it is a foreshadowing of the cross. That God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah who descended through David's line would come down from heaven to earth, live a perfect life of obedience and willingly go to the cross to pay the penalty of death that you and I deserve for our sin against God. The son of the king of heaven died to pay for your sins. That is our assurance that God, the King of Kings, was willing to pay the incalculable cost by not even sparing his own son so that you and I could be forgiven and restored to him in eternity forever. John 3.16, famous words, I'm sure we'll know them. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Okay, question though. What about David's child? How is it fair that he dies? I understand that that Jesus chose to go to the cross, but that child didn't get to choose. How can that be just? It is a fair question. Two things to say. One, remember, the child dies because of David's sin. Sin always leads to death. And it always impacts other people. That is how serious sin is. Number two, God is not condemning the child for David's sin. So the child joins God in paradise. That's why David can say what he says in verse 23. Have a look. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David's child has gone to be with God in paradise forever. I know the child dies. But that means being with God rather than living on earth in a dysfunctional family which is about to tear itself apart with incest and murder. And David and his family, they are going to have to endure the brutal consequences of David's sin and we're going to see that next week. And yet there are signs of God's mercy and grace to him in the remainder of this chapter. God blesses David's marriage to Bathsheba with the birth of Solomon. And it's through Solomon that David's royal line will continue right down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God that sin cannot stop God's salvation plan. And God restores David to his rightful kingship. He executes his rightful responsibilities by joining Job on the battlefield. And that's where he should have been all along. 
God is more gracious and kind to us than any of us even realize. That's how good he is. So as we close, what does that mean for you and me? Number one, our sin really matters. If God cannot tolerate the sin of his anointed king, what makes you think he will tolerate your hardened unrepentance? And two, if sin as wicked as this can be forgiven, then so can yours and so can mine. That is the great hope for the Christian, that if we confess our sins, repent, put our trust in Jesus Christ, we can have full assurance that every single sin has been paid for and God will welcome us back with open arms. In a minute, we're gonna confess our sins together and maybe you've never done that before. Can I urge you tonight, let God take your sin. Don't walk out of here bearing the burden and the guilt and the shame. Only Jesus, the son of the king, can take away your sin. And he has done it by paying the penalty of death that we deserved at the cross. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that even though we have despised you and sinned against you, you gave up your one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that our sins could be taken away and our guilt forgiven through his death on the cross. Father, for those of us who are still trusting in our own righteousness, please, in your great mercy, would you humble us and lead us to repentance so that when you return on the last day, we can declare worthy as the lamb that was slain, giving your name the honor and glory you deserve. And Father, for those of us who are trusting you, but wrestle with whether our sins really are forgiven. Lord, help us to look to Christ who rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. Help us remember he is our assurance that every single sin has been paid for by his precious blood. Help us, Father, by the power of your spirit to live lives worthy of the salvation you've bought for us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.